0: This episode of The Wrong Station includes a scene involving sexual coercion. We've tried to be responsible with this depiction, but some listeners may need to skip it. It occurs between the 25 minute, 26 second mark and 27 minute mark. Thank you. She loved to get lost in those films, the colors, strange music, grainy texture of black-gloved hands pressing into smooth, bare flesh, the bright, surreal flow of blood. She sat alone in her room with lights off and earbuds in, drinking in that other world, feasting on it, that saturated, 70s other land of vice and sin and madness, so unlike the gray little world she knew. Vaughn, Ontario, in the winter. Her father had other ideas. In the gray of a morning when she was 17, he'd sat across the breakfast table from her, his big square hand dwarfing the big square coffee mug as he toyed with its handle. "'Monica, I don't want you watching those movies anymore. You're filth. Pornography. It isn't art, no matter what you've been reading, and I don't want it happening under my roof.' Monica never said a word in her own defense just looked off down to the side, and when he asked, have I made myself clear, nodded, and mumbled the words. I guess so. She didn't even look over to the sink where her mother was washing dishes by hand in the pale gray glow. Small and slender woman whose delicate face so mirrored Monica's own. Never bothered looking to her mother for help because she knew her mother would never speak up for her, would never even speak up for herself. Monica's father stood, rested that heavy hand on his daughter's shoulder as he made his way out of the room. That's my girl, is what he'd said. My girl. I'm glad we had this talk. Now three and a half years had passed, Monica still living at home, trapped by the rental market. She escaped to class in the afternoons and evenings, riding the long yellow line down from Vaughn to the campus long hours adding up in the yellow-gray light of the swaying train, the ads all blurring together, darkness riding by outside the scratched-up plastic windows. But when she stepped into the great dim womb of the lecture hall, her world at last came clear in seventy-millimeter film, the yellow flicker of the vast projector screen in that two-thirds empty hole. When the film and lecture and discussion were over, She packed her things up slowly and was always the last to drag her feet out into the bleary light of the empty halls, the fracturing fluorescent reflections on cold terrazzo. She always lingered, trying to drink the last of freedom before a northbound train hurled her to homeward exile. And it was always a mistake, because Vittorio was always waiting for her. Hey, Monty, how you doing? He'd fallen in beside her, wearing a wide, panting grin— I'm fine. Thank you, Vito. I was wondering, what are you up to this Saturday? She had told him several times, in her own half-hearted, halting way, that she was not looking to date right now. She hadn't ever told him what her own heart screamed every time she saw him, which was, not you, not you, never you, so long as I live. And maybe he saw some ghost of this feeling on her face because he raised his hands in a placating gesture. I know, I know. But look, it's not a date. They're just playing Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye at the Real on Saturday, and I thought you might want to come. You know, as research. He winked. I, um... She reached up to play with her hair. Not flirtatiously, but anxiously, trying to hide behind it. She wasn't stupid. She knew a date when she saw it. I'd really love to, you know, Vito, but... It's just that there's some some family stuff I'm supposed to go to that night. Ah, uh, sure, sure. His smile faded. But it's just, uh... Well, it's a shame, you know? It's, uh, it's a great film. And the sort of thing you should see to broaden your horizons. Hey, uh, you know I was talking to my Aunt Sylvia the other day? You remember her from church? The big handbag? Her skin crawled. She didn't like the abrupt pivot. And she didn't like it when he reminded her they had that thing in common, the church. It was always a reminder that he thought he had some claim on her, that he thought she owed him something. I remember her. She was always nice to me. Monica lied. Yeah, yeah, nice lady. Anyway, she said something funny to me, you know? Not uh, ha-ha, but... Huh. Y- you know what she said? Monica shook her head. By now, Vito was smiling again. What she said was, was she was talking to your dad, and your dad said you were doing something to do with accounting? And I was like, wait, do Monica's parents not even know that she's taking film courses? Hey, listen, I know they're kind of old-fashioned and all, but I don't think they'd be against it. I mean, film itself is pretty old-fashioned at this point, no? But anyway, I was so caught off guard that I almost let it slip to my aunt that you and I had classes together. Can you believe? had been pretty bad, right? But I caught myself at the last minute. Oh, yeah, I told her. Uh, I sometimes see her around the Commerce Building. Which was technically true, right? I mean, we're around the Commerce Building. Like, in the same vicinity, you know? So I thought that was pretty clever. Especially since Aunt Sylvia, you know, she's a smart lady. She can sniff out a lie if you're not careful. So it's a good thing I was, eh? Pretty close call, huh? Phew. He mimed, wiping his brow, and grinned at her. Didn't have to say anything else. Didn't have to spell out the implied blackmail by saying something like, "'Be a shame if your parents found out.' He knew she was smart enough to put two and two together on her own. It was part of what made her interesting to him. He also knew she could be pushed around. That was another thing he liked. "'You know what, Vito?' She licked dry lips, and he looked at her with interest." I... I think I could actually swing that movie on Saturday night. You mean it? And for a moment, the meanness and calculation were gone from his smile, and his face was just boyish joy. She looked down and to the side, mumbled the words. I guess so. Great! Film starts at 10pm! His round face brightened. And, of course, we'll have to go for drinks and dinner first. Right? Right? And of course they did. And even though she squirmed through it, dinner and drinks weren't too bad, because at least they could talk about the movies they both loved. And then, 10pm rolled around, and she was able at last to lose herself among the crowd of interesting and well-dressed people filtering below the Art Deco marquee of the Riel. And though she hated the way Vittorio leaned over the armrest to press his shoulder into hers, she was happy for all 95 minutes of the film's runtime the bizarre gothic of murder and incest, the absurd charm of Italian actors playing Scottish lairds. But then the film ended, and she was left standing on freezing pavement under cold mummified honey locust trees in the middle of a January night, and Vittorio grinning at her expectantly. Wow, it's late. Yeah, uh, I guess the film didn't start until ten. Ah, I don't really want the night to end, though. You know, I'm I'm still just so amped up from the movie. Hey, uh, my apartment's just around the corner. You want to come up for some tea? No, I... I have to catch the last subway up. My parents are expecting me. His face fell. Boyish sadness. Maybe a flicker of concealed anger. Right. I forgot you were still living at home. Well, maybe next time you can crash at my place. So you don't have to worry about leaving so early. Um... I guess, maybe. Well, he was suddenly brisk and a little chill. It's cold. I'm gonna head home. Last chance if you want that drink. She shook her head. (sighs) Yeah, well, uh, have a good night then. He suddenly lurched forward and planted a loud kiss on her ear. Maybe he'd been aiming for her cheek, but she'd recoiled, making him miss. Get home safe. He turned abruptly, then hunched down the grey-dark street with hands in his pockets and shoulders hunched about his ears, leaving her alone. The street's dark and empty as she walked toward the subway. Usually there'd be life on the sidewalk in this part of town at this time of night, clusters of smokers at least, hunched in their billows of steam and nicotine under the pink-neon lights. But it was too cold tonight, and she was alone. A few doors down from the Riel stretched the wide black windows of an art gallery. A trendy spot, Galleria Meraviglia, A few dim yellow lights casting angled shadows to the darkness contained within its tinted glass. As she passed the front window, she thought she saw movement inside. She stopped, a double-take. And then froze saw it as her eyes went wide. Two figures were standing pressed against each other in the darkness, half dismembered by the slanting blades of shadow. For a moment she thought they must be lovers, for she had the impression of black lace and bare female flesh writhing in the grip of strong hands. But then the blade flashed greenly, and she gasped and took a half-step back, covering her mouth, and the blade drew a slow, dark line across the shadow where a neck might have been. Suddenly, dark torrents ran down the exposed flesh, and whoever was in there trembled and fell still. And then the figure with black gloves let a woman's body fall and stood staring out at Monica from the darkness. She ran for all she was worth, caught the last northbound subway car just as its doors were sliding shut, stood anxious at the windows to see if anyone had chased her down into the station. But though she saw no one, The lights were out down at the end of the last subway car, and all the way to Vaughan she glanced nervously down in that direction, half expecting to see some trench-coated figure lurking in its shade. She called the police when she arrived home and found safety inside of her room, but she could tell from the voice at the other end of the line that the duty officer did not believe a word she said. She didn't go to class the next day, An officer had come late that night to take her statement, but it was clear from the look on his face as he scribbled spiral pad notes with a blunt golf pencil that he didn't believe her either. At one point, when both her parents were out of the room, he'd made a leering pass at her. When he left, her father told him, "'I'm sorry our daughter wasted your important time.' She helped her mother with the laundry that afternoon. They worked together in silence.' It wasn't until they were folding up her father's shirts that Monica found the strength to whisper a question. You don't believe me either, do you? It took her mother a full 90 seconds to murmur an answer. I believe that you believe you saw something. She gently placed one of her husband's shirts into the drawer, but you don't believe it was real. Another long pause. You're a... Sensitive girl, Monica. Sometimes you... She didn't finish the thought. My little sister was the same way. She said instead, You take after her as much as me. It was the end of their conversation. Monica's mother didn't like to talk about her sister. Teresa. Monica had barely heard the woman's name. The next morning, hunching over the breakfast table, her father told her, You're going back to school today. School's your job. Can't have you just sitting around the house like your mother the rest of your life. Over at the sink, Monica's mother said nothing to defend herself. Just looked down and to the side. Didn't even bother looking over for help to the table where her daughter sat. Small and slender woman whose delicate face so mirrored her own. She knew Monica would never speak up for her. Would never even speak up for herself. Then came Tuesday, and with it the blessed evening hour's freedom in the darkened womb with the yellow screen. As always, these hours fled too quickly, and she found herself dragging her feet down surreal terrazzo floors with the abruptness of a hard cut. Inevitably, Vittorio detached himself from a nearby garbage can as she turned a corner. Hey, what the hell? His round face, blotchy with anger. I must have texted you like 50 times. Why didn't you respond? Do you have any idea how that made me feel? Sorry, Vito. I I didn't mean... Well, sorry doesn't always cut it, you know. Like, that's a really shitty thing to do to a person, Monica. And she cut him off. Almost the first time in her life she'd cut anybody off. Look, Vito, something messed up happened, okay? Her sudden intensity grabbed his attention. His eyes went wide, and he stepped closer to her, deepening his voice. "'What's wrong, Monty? Are you okay? Is someone bothering you?' She pulled him into the dark entrance of an empty classroom, trying not to notice the faint tremble that went through him at her touch. Then the details of that night poured out of her, almost without conscious assent. She had the curious feeling as she spoke that she was watching someone else speak. Someone on a yellow screen somewhere. An actor, only following someone else's script." But the entire time she spoke, Vito's eyes were locked onto hers, the pupils widening with each detail. He drank it in, feasted on it. When she had finished, he told her, This is incredible. I I might have seen a murder. How is that incredible? Don't you see? It's just like a giallo movie. A mysterious crime is witnessed by a a beautiful woman, and she has to solve it to prove to herself she's not mad. I know what I saw. She lied. He took her by both elbows. Do you? I live on that block, remember? I pass the Maravilia every day. There's been no police tape. Nothing. What evidence do you have that a crime was even committed? Why would I make it up? But he ignored her. His eyes were bright, his tongue moistening his lips. Let's go tomorrow. Just to go and poke around after class. See if we can find any clues. Don't don't you think? Don't you think it'll be fun? She didn't think it would. Didn't want to set foot on that block again for the rest of her life. But he was right about something. She did want to prove to herself that she wasn't mad. That she wasn't like Teresa. And so she looked down into the side. Once again, she heard her own voice speak. Like it wasn't her own. Like the words were words she didn't want to say. What they said was, Okay, I guess. The next evening, when they came upon the Meraviglia, its doors were flung open, and beyond the dark glass, its lights were blazing white. A crowded exhibition, no opera wear that night, only black denim and perfecto jackets, black brimmed hats and hand tattoos. A crowd just young enough that Monica and Vittorio could almost blend in, wandering like children beneath brutal monumental canvases, the paintings all violent nudes, rendered in jagged streaks of bright color. They towered over that strange crowd. They hung on reddened chains from a dim and distant ceiling like slaughtered hogs, Vittorio was shameless, sidling up to strangers in what he thought was a nonchalant manner, asking if they came here often, or if they'd heard anything interesting about an event last Saturday night. For her part, Monica clung to the sides of the gallery wall, unable to speak to anyone, only staring with jack-lit eyes for any stray spot of blood upon the floor, any faint splatter on the clean, white walls. She didn't realize she wasn't alone until someone spoke almost directly in her ear. Your boyfriend is making quite the impression. She looked up in terror. Creeping along the wall, she had entered the shadow of a tall and slender older man who was speeding the process of his own slow suicide by means of vape pen. He's, he's not my boyfriend. Somebody should tell him that, the way he keeps looking at you like he owns you. The man had no eyebrows at all, just smooth skin like white plasticine packed over his skull, fading into dirty blonde fuzz at the crest, his eyes so pale as to be almost clear. What are the two of you doing here anyway? You clearly weren't invited. We um were friends of the artist. She attempted, but the man just giggled into his vape. I fuck people with the artist, little girl. I know all his friends. Now, who are you, really? I, we were just uh, walking by the other night, and we thought we saw something in the window, so we, uh, that is, he wanted to come down and find out, you know, what it might have been. The pale-eyed man just smiled down at her. What night was this, soft goth Miss Marple? Saturday. The gallery was closed on Saturday. Our. Are you sure? It's my gallery, darling. What do you think you saw? Suddenly, with a cold and nauseous feeling, she realized she might be speaking with the killer. Was there maybe a break-in? Now the pale man's grin grew wide, and he sprayed slow, gray, scented vapor from his nostrils. Oh, I understand now. I understand exactly what's going on. She was bewildered. You... you do? Oh, yes. You're that kind of girl, aren't you? Oh, I've met your kind before. Jittery, traumatized. Troubled life at home? Mm? He chuckled in exaggerated pity. Sweet dove. Yes, we used to have someone just like you working here. He leaned closer, dwarfing her, drowning her in shadow, showing small, strange, perfect teeth. You know what happened to her? Monica retreated from him, shaking her head. Well, they all break eventually, don't they? Just like that. Poor thing. Tried to kill her poor sister and the sister's awful boyfriend. Oh, they tried the burning bed defense, but it doesn't ever work for crazy girls like that. They locked her away, you know. Forever. He stared at her a moment before drawing a sharp, sudden breath. Some revelation brightened his eyes like winter sunlight. Oh, that's interesting. But whatever dark revelation that might have been, she fled before he could share it. Outside, who was that guy, anyway? Vittorio was sullen, his hands stuffed into pockets. He, uh, he seemed real interested. The gallery owner. She kept her shoulders hunched against the cold and against the world. It was already dark. I didn't like him. He was telling me some horrible story about a madwoman who used to work there before they locked her away. Hmm. For a moment, Vito seemed mollified. Then, suddenly, his eyes widened and he swiveled his head to look at her. Did you say Madwoman? That's just it. That's exactly who the killer would be in a movie of this. Come on. He half-jogged down the street, fumbling with keys in his pocket. She wandered vaguely behind him. Where are we going, Vito? Just come on. We have to try and track her down. He was at a glass door tucked diagonal to the red brick tenements. She realized too late that it must be the entrance to his apartment. Actually, it's getting late. I should probably... Come on, Monica, just a little bit. We'll have a cup of tea and spend an hour looking. That's all. This is our chance to catch a killer. I promise I won't try anything else. But when she followed him resignedly upstairs, it wasn't tea, but bad red wine he plied her with. And as he hunched at his computer, digging through old newspaper archives for mentions of art galleries and mental health crises... He kept glancing over his shoulder at her and trying to refill her glass. She allowed him to, the fewest times she felt she could politely get away with, and the rest of the time she stared out the window at the black, cold street and the cold, orange lights, imagining she lived in some warm, different place, some different time, that she dressed elegantly and that she was with someone else. Some vague, handsome presence she could scarcely imagine. After almost an hour of this, Vittorio sat upright. My God, this is it. Monica blinked. Fantasy evaporated. Cut back to a cramped, cold apartment above a black and orange street. July 17th, 2007. Vito was reading. Blah, blah, blah when 22-year-old Teresa Crispino attempted to murder her sister and brother-in-law in in their sleep at a West End Toronto apartment. Mrs. Crispino, who has been charged with attempted murder, was an employee at the Galleria Meraviglia in Little Italy. He shook his head, laughing in wonder and disbelief. This is it! This is really it! He turned to her as she stared at the screen, trying to make further details emerge writhing from the short, terse text. Don't you see, Monica? This is the break. We've done it. We've found her. This is how we proved to everyone. You saw what you saw. he had taken hold of her hand between both of his, and was gently stroking the base of her thumb. Aren't you excited? Was excited the word? No. She felt lost and confused, and something about the revelation filled her with an ominous feeling she didn't fully understand. She did not know the name Crispino, but Teresa was all too familiar, too coincidental. Was this it, then? The reason her parents had always driven her away from the things she loved? Her mother's lost sister, a high-strung, sensitive girl just like her, who'd become embroiled in the world of art and found something there that shattered something fragile in her. Vito kissed her. It came as a surprise, and it wasn't welcome, but she found that it wasn't a bad kiss, and though she didn't kiss him back, she didn't push him away either. He kept kissing her, and though she didn't want him, she didn't know what she did want, and he wanted her so badly, and there was something about that clarity of purpose which she felt she just didn't have it in her to resist and so she let him push her over on the couch and begin to undress her. She guessed that they were friends, and she guessed he wasn't so bad to look at, and she guessed that it might be nice and there was no reason not to, and she guessed that if she gave him what he wanted, then maybe he would leave her alone going forward. And so she responded a little with small, cold kisses, and let him steer her to the bedroom. Full black sky outside by now, with dry brown leaves rattling against the window. Fumblings in the dim and musty bedroom, half-lit by orange streetlight bleeding in the tiny upper window. Then the rustling of a condom wrapper. Then the awkward part. Sometimes uncomfortable. Sometimes nice for a few moments. And the room was all dark, and she could imagine she was with someone else. Someone faceless. Wearing black gloves. Then he shuddered unexpectedly, and for a moment she thought he'd climaxed. But then, the bright, hard tip of a knife thrust out like a tongue between his teeth, and a sputter of searing blood fell thick across her face and neck. She screamed and screamed as he was lifted off her by the knife and tossed aside. A black silhouette towered over her in the darkness. Only a rogue beam of yellow light lit up the black-gloved hand and bloody blade. She covered up her face in nakedness and screamed again and begged for life. But no answer came except for the pounding of blood in her head. She eventually dared to uncurl, dared to look up. At an empty ceiling, a dim panel of streetlight in the darkened chipping paint. And then, as she rose trembling and weeping with the bloody blanket wrapped around her. She found only a great emptiness in that black apartment. Nothing and no one there. No sign, no trace. As if a great, invisible force had coalesced for one moment like a storm touching down, and then dispersed. Nobody there. The killer, gone. She was left alone in Vito's apartment, with Vito's body. She rested one hand on his cheek as she looked into his clouding eyes. A gentle seeming gesture, though not of kindness, but to convince herself that they were real. By the time she'd cleaned the blood off herself and stepped out onto the street, it was past 2 a.m., the street lights half burned out, and the sidewalk throwing back faint orange light from the black frost, maybe 22 below. It was far too late to catch the last train, and she didn't know what she was going to do. Maybe the safest thing was to wait in Vito's apartment until the subway opened at six. But the killer could come back at any time. And the thought of Vito lying there, staring up with empty eyes and black-scabbed lips, almost sleepwalking, moving almost without volition, she crossed the empty street toward a humming sign shaped like a pink neon automotive accident. The bar's name on a sign in the grimy window. The wreck. At least it was warm inside, and the walls painted red like a womb. They were playing a song she didn't recognize as Vivian Girls by Fucked Up, the music discordant and strange to her, the place almost empty, which came as a small blessing. And so she slid onto a stool at the bar and stared at her hands. You looked like you could use a drink. The bartender, tall and handsome, clean shoulders, and he looked a little like the singer from Coldplay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Just vodka, please. On the house. Is everything okay? Yeah, um. Just yeah. Uh, well, actually, my date kinda ditched me. Now I'm stuck downtown. He whistled through his teeth. Piece of shit. How far do you have to go? Vaughn. Avenue? Ontario. Yikes. Uh, well, I can call you an Uber. She suddenly realized she didn't know where her phone was. I... I don't know how I'd be able to pay you back. He shrugged, thought for a moment. You could buy me a drink on Saturday. She'd never been asked out in such an easy way before. But even though he struck her as warm and decent, Vito's body was barely even cold, and even though she'd hated him... Had she hated him? Yes. Even though she'd hated him and was glad he was dead, she still couldn't get away from the idea that he had some claim on her. That she owed him something, especially now that he was lying cold in his own apartment with a hole through the base of his skull because of her. The bartender saw her hesitate and hung his head with a rueful smile. If it's a no, it's a no, he said. I'll still call you an Uber. No, she heard herself saying. It's fine. I mean, yeah, Saturday sounds nice, I guess. You guess? It... It sounds nice. Wonderful. He smiled wide and warm and charming, stuck out a strong hand to introduce himself. She felt her own hand was small and strange as a bird's foot as she shook it. Then it's a date, he told her. I'm Caleb, by the way. When she arrived home it was just past four and her father was waiting for her at the breakfast table he had a glass of brown liquor in his hand and his eyes were rimmed with red and exactly what time do you call this she hung her head and said nothing where have you been monica and when she said nothing he set down the glass and pushed slowly to his feet a large man very strong for his age the table creaked as he rested his palms on it and leaned his weight forward, the blackness of the kitchen window framing him behind. Hm. Nothing to say for yourself? I'm sorry, she mumbled. You're sorry. He was very quiet, his voice very calm. You slouch into my house like a whore at four in the morning and you're sorry. I, I'm sorry, she said again. She didn't know what else to say. He sighed, hung his head for a moment, then came around the table and crooked a heavy finger under her chin, lifting her face to look at him. You are my daughter. Do you understand me? And how you act reflects on this family. All right? Your mother and I raised you better than this. You know how you're expected to behave. Now act like it. Or else you'll be out on the street where you belong. His eyes were relentless, unblinking. She wanted to look down and to the side, but he wouldn't let her. Just held her chin up and stared into the depths of her head. Have I been clear? She blinked, trying to nod. I need to hear you say it, Monica. I, I... I guess... Not your guess. You understand. I... understand. That's my girl. He let her chin fall, cupped her cheek, and smiled, the same gesture she'd used on Vito's corpse. I'm glad we had this talk. Then he walked slowly from the room and up the stairs to bed. She sat a long time at the kitchen table with her head in her hands, It was well past five by the time she went upstairs to go to bed. Opening the door to her bedroom, she paused, turned slowly, her mother was standing down the end of the hole, watching with wide, blank eyes from the master bedroom door. Mom? Her mother only stared, ghastly, uncanny in the half darkness. Then, in a strange, thick whisper, said, Teresa, is that you? A sick thrill of sick fear crept down along Monica's spine. No, Mom, it's just me. Go back to sleep. Monica's mother blinked then nodded slowly "Ah" she said "That's that's good Go to sleep Teresa Go to sleep" Monica wasn't sure whether she was talking to her or to herself and then she was gone She went on Saturday In spite of everything, her father's wishes, her mother's eerie silences, her desire to never set foot within a hundred miles of Vito's apartment, she went. It was too much to stay at home in that grey house. Something inside her screamed to be free. And so she went, all the while justifying it to herself that she had promised Caleb and didn't have a way to call him and cancel. As long as it was for someone else, it was allowed. As long as it wasn't for the sake of her own desire to be free. She rode down the long yellow line under the yellow-gray light of the swaying train, emerged into the cold blue-gray light at the end of a Toronto winter's day, walked alone down frost matted streets she'd come to know too well, under orange sidewalk lights just starting to shiver into life, passed with a shudder, the meraviglia, with heavy curtains now covering up its black depths. She paused outside of Vito's place. No police tape on the door. No sign of any investigation. Some strange urge caused her to knock. No answer came, but when she stepped away and looked up, she saw him waiting at the window, with his black lips and a bit of brainstem hanging from his mouth. As she looked up in blank terror, he slowly smiled. Caleb was waiting for her at the wreck, just as she remembered him, warm and kind and handsome. I didn't think you'd really show, he said with a smile. Yeah, well, I, uh, I owed you. I hope you didn't come out just as some sense of obligation. She looked down into the side. Uh, no, no, she said. You... I thought you were nice. I'm glad to hear it. He leaned in slightly. I think you're really beautiful, Monica. You got that look, you know, like something out of an old movie. One of those Italian films from the 70s. They had a drink at the wreck, and then he took her to dinner at a restaurant down the street. The food was good. The wine was good. Caleb was kind and easy with her. Never talked over her like Vito did, or her father. He paid the check. When they were walking out into the cold, she asked him, Did I just make you up? He laughed. What could she possibly mean by that? But she shook her head and looked aside and held on to his arm against the cold. Here we are. He said a few moments later, last stop of the night. She looked up, in horror saw the name of the place where he had brought her, Galleria Meraviglia. Why are we here? She pleaded. He only frowned, confused. To see the show? I thought you were into art, into darker stuff. I don't want to be here. Why not? It's just a gallery. Come on. Don't be shy. We'll stick our heads in and see if we like the vibe. And after that, we can do whatever we want. Okay? And now the moment came. He put one hand on the door and stretched the other out to her, waited with a guileless smile on his face. What do you say, Monica? Something inside her screamed. No, not here. Never here. Not so long as I live. But that's not what she said. Her own voice sounded like a stranger's in her head, like someone else was speaking through her. But it was her voice, her lips that shaped the words, her lungs that shaped the breath, her own self that allowed them to be spoken. Here. Now. I... She said. I guess so those words. Wonderful. He took her by the head and swung open the door and pulled them both into darkness. The door clanged shut behind her and bolted itself with a click. She was alone inside the Galleria Meraviglia, and all was darkness except where a few dim yellow lights slanted through the shadow. Caleb? Caleb, where'd you go? Someone moved in the darkness ahead of her. Caleb, this isn't funny. But no answer came, and the figure, as her eyes adjusted, and as it stepped forward from pure darkness into mingled umbra, was not Caleb, a tall, masked figure in a trench coat and black gloves. The killer. She fell still. Who are you? The killer took a slow step forward, but did not answer. ''Caleb, is that you? Is this some sort of trick?'' The killer did not answer, but she knew he was not Caleb. She took a step back. ''You're Teresa, my aunt. You went insane and they locked you up years ago. Now you're out and you want revenge against my parents.'' But the killer's shoulders shook with silent laughter. Not Teresa either. Not Vito, slowly rotting in a unit down the street. Not the gallery owner, either. She was sure. He stepped close, towered over her, took her upper arms in each of his powerful hands, the hands tight upon her as she understood. Her father, who had kept such tight control over the women in his life, who would go to even greater lengths to keep them bound up to his will, even murder, was you. The entire time. And even before... It was you who faked the attempt on your life, who put Aunt Teresa away. (laughs) The killer chuckled in her ear. His breath was warm. A touch of it through his mask, a pale caress. He shook his head and seized control of one of her hands, forcing it slowly up to the mask that hid his face. Not her father, or her mother either. She was crying by now. Is it me? She asked him. Was it me all along? He wrapped her fingers round the edges of the cloth and whispered more than that. He let go of her hand. She pulled. The mask came away. Nothing behind it. Just a hollow coat. A hollow hat. A vacant set of gloves. They fell away, empty to the floor, and she was left, screaming. Alone in the curtained darkness of an empty room. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Seven Yellow Pins Through the Skull of a Dove, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Batello. Thank you to Nanette, Dari Zumi, Anne Hill, Gibran Mahmoud, and Aztec Steel for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at thewrongstation@gmail.com. At and until next time, thank you for listening.